your Bibles this morning, I hope you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Um, I really struggled on deviating since I opened this book last week. I did an introduction last week, and we went through verses 1 through 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 10. I, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to stay the course uh, today. Uh, last week, uh, Paul, we saw in his opening statements to this letter, his commitment to thankfulness and challenged us as a Christian people to be a thankful people. And when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you see this letter overall has an overarching theme of commitment. He challenges the church to be committed more to Christ than anything else. Uh, it's wonderful to have an archery team. It's wonderful to have a Sunday school. It's wonderful to have a youth ministry. It's wonderful to have all these departments in the church. But all these departments need to be committed to Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to help man these ministries and man these departments and, and put some manpower in these departments. But we all do so under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and being committed to the Lord. And so what Paul is going to do in this letter, he's going to go through this, this area of commitment and he's really going to challenge us in every area of our lives to be more committed to Jesus in particular areas. Last week it was be committed to Christ in the area of thankfulness. Even though things might be going wrong, you still can be thankful. Even things may not be going your way, you can still be a thankful person. This week he's going to be talking about being committed to unity being committed to unity. Uh, we're over in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and I hope you found your place. If you have, uh, we'll start in verse number 10. If you'll please stand for the reading of the Word of God, we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and read all the way down to verse 17. This is the paragraph that we'll deal with next. Notice what the Scripture says. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. This I say, now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, uh, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. You may be seated for prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to read your word, study your word, and thank you so much for the opportunity I have to preach your word. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray the best that I know how. I yield myself to you only to be used as your mouthpiece to preach your word. God, the last thing on earth we need is another sermon. What we need is a message from the very throne room of God. You have given us your love letter to us. May we look at it, may we read it, may we uh, understand it and apply it to our life and live a life of holiness and wisdom as you speak to us through your word today. Lord, I pray that people will see less of me and more of you. 
And we'll give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Uh, do what you will in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since it is Father's Day, and I'm not really preaching a Father's Day message, I thought I would start with a Father's Day story. I don't know if you heard about the four guys. They were all in the hospital. Their wives were having babies. All four of these men were queasy, and they could not stay in the delivery room. So they met each other out in the waiting room. All four of them were there, and as they were standing there, all four together, excited and prayerful for one another's wives. When all of a sudden the nurse came out and came to the first guy and said, Sir, we want to congratulate you. You are now the father of twins. To which the man took a step back and he said, That's very odd. He said, You're not going to believe this, but I work for the Minnesota Twins. And it is absolutely odd to me that I would have twins. That's really neat. Well, he no more got that out of his mouth. And the nurse walked out to the second man and said, Sir, congratulations, you're the father of triplets. The man said, you thought that was weird? Guess where I work? I work for 3M. I cannot believe that I just had triplets, me working at 3M. That is absolutely amazing. The nurse came out and went to the third, third guy and said, Sir, congratulations, you're the father of quadruplets. The man stood back in astonishment and shook his head, and he said, I cannot believe that. That is so strange. He said, Guys, I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. It is absolutely incredible that my wife just had triplets. Well, about that time, they looked over at the fourth man, and he had his head up against the glass there of the nursery and was banging his head against the window, just banging it, banging it, banging it. The men came around him and said, Sir, sir, are you okay? He said, No, I'm not okay. I work for 7-Up. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about some things that uh, you know, you'll never hear fathers say. Um, here are some things you'll never hear fathers say. Um, I'd never hear my father say this, and I probably not ever say it to my son, uh, sons either. When they're in the car with me, you'll never hear a father say, Hey, turn that music up, please. Or you'll never hear a father say this, Wow. That tattoo looks really great. We should both go get one. Uh, how about this one? Yeah, sure. Go ahead and take my car. Here's 50 bucks for gas, too. All right, here's one. Your mother and I are going away for the weekend. Why don't you invite all your friends and throw a big party? Here's one that will not be said today at my house. Here, son, have the remote. <laughs> Several years ago, I was preparing to go to Sunday school. I was sitting in my office when there was a knock at my door. I said, come in. And uh, they came in and in walked two very prominent uh, church members uh, at the previous church I was at. This was several years ago. I had only been there about uh, maybe four or five years. These men were well known in the church and they truly loved their families. They were godly men. They loved God with all their heart and uh, they loved their families. They came in. At this particular season in my life, I was serving as the co-pastor of the church. As they sat down on my couch there in my office as I was preparing to go to Sunday school, they proceeded to take the next hour to grill me and try to educate me on a theology that I do not hold to. Now, this church holds to the same theology that I hold to. You always have, and I'm grateful for it. And this church is known as a dispensational church. That is to say, when you look at the Word of God, you see that there are different ages in the Word of God. Uh, for example, in creation, this is called the age of innocence. And from creation of the world until when Adam and Eve sinned, that's called the age of innocence. And then you see something change. Man sins, they get kicked out of the garden, and then you see something new. 
something new takes place and happens. That's called a new age. And then that age rocks on, and then there's an, another age, and another age, and another age. Well, this is not a sermon on dispensationalism, but this is a theology that this church holds to and always has. This is the same theology that I've always held to, and I'm very grateful for it. Many, of, many folks call this premillennial dispensationalism. Now, there's another theology that's out there that is contrary to this doctrine, and it is called covenant theology. This covenant theology is very good. Now, I am not saying that there are not covenants in the Bible. There are. But what covenant theology gets wrong is they say that God is done with Israel. That when God, when Israel rejected uh, Jesus Christ as their Messiah, then God did something different and rejected Israel. Now, Israel, we know, is God's chosen people. And the Bible says that right now, according to the Word of God and the dispensation of grace, their eyes have been darkened. They are blind to the truth of the gospel. They are all but agnostics over there in Israel today. It's absolutely amazing. But God is not done with Israel. He's not finished with them. He still has a plan for them. And so I am not covenant in my theology, and I was really settled on that uh, many years ago, but these men came and tried to sway me over to their side. Now, here's the point of this illustration, that, uh, this introduction that I'm trying to give you. As the co-pastor of the church, the reason why they wanted to sway me is because they wanted to move the church from a premillennial dispensational theology to a covenant theology. Now, be mindful of this. There are many other churches across the area that have covenant theology. You're welcome to go there. But don't mess up the church's theology if it's biblical and they're following after the Word of God. They were doing their dead-level best to divide the church. That's the same thing that was happening at, here in this church, the church at Corinth. Now, you might be asking yourself this question. Pastor, do you believe that there's divisions at Maysville Baptist Church? No, I do not. But here's what I do believe. I do believe God has got His hand on this place and is moving in such a mighty, powerful way that the devil would love nothing more than to somebody to come in and start stirring the pot, if you will, and causing trouble and try to move us from a position of the Word of God where we believe in premillennial dispensationalism and try to move us off into another direction. And not just that, but in any type of area. When God is moving, the way that He's moving here on this hillside and people are being saved, people are being baptized, families are being put back together, the church is growing at a tremendous rate, uh, missionaries are going out from this place. Young men are answering the call to preach. I'm telling you, it makes the devil so mad. And if he can get somebody in here with a little bit of disagreement and he can get you pitted against somebody else, then he is absolutely happy because we take our attention off the Word of God, off of Jesus Christ, and onto the problems, and then we're in trouble. So I believe what we're finding here in First, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians is I think we're finding some, uh, some really good preventative medicine. That's what we find here in the text, some preventative medicine. So in regard to preventative medicine, it's vitally important that the one thing that we take away from the book of 1 Corinthians is commitment. May we all be more committed to Jesus Christ more than anything else. Last week we saw the commitment of the Corinthians was that of their spiritual gifts. And we'll see this throughout the book. They were more, more committed to the gifts than they were to God. God wants us to exercise our spiritual gifts, but He wants us to be committed to Him. We also see here in the text that they were also committed, committing themselves to other preachers. Dear friend, listen to me very carefully. As uh, wonderful as, as this church is, 
and as so kind as you are to love your pastor the way that you do. You ought not to be 100% committed to me. You ought to be 100% committed to Jesus Christ. You ought to be committed to him and to him alone. And in that commitment to him, you'll, you'll want to please him. You ought not to want to sing in the choir and be committed to the choir to please me. You ought not to sing in the choir to please Phil or, or David or Mark or, or Chris or anybody else here on this staff. No, you ought to sing in the choir because you're committed to him. You're committed to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You ought to serve as a Sunday school teacher. Not because you're begged and pleaded and asked and because you think that we might have a shortage of teachers. No, listen, do you realize that not only does God have all the money that we need here at Maysville Baptist Church, He also has all the teachers we need. He has all the assistant teachers that we need. He has everybody that He needs to operate this church and to run this church for His glory and for His honor. And, he, and listen, it takes you and I to do that job and to surrender, but we've got to be committed to Him. Committed to Him. And so if we're going to be committed to Him, and there's going to be an air of unity in our commitment, then Paul, what do you want to say to us today in this regard? Well, he wants to say three things to us. Number one, the first thing he wants to show us is the standard. The standard for unity. What is the biblical standard for unity in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, we see the answer today in the Word of God. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 10. Under <clears throat> the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak all, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now right here in this one passage of Scripture, we find the biblical standard for unity in the church. What is it? Well, it's threefold. There are three things you must see in this text in order to understand the biblical standard for unity because it speaks to three different areas. Number one, it speaks to a verbal unitedness. He is simply saying that I need you to be verbally united. You ought to be saying the same thing. Notice what the Bible says. The scripture tells us that ye all speak the same thing. If you write in your Bibles, and I strongly encourage you to do so, I would underline that word speak. The word speak here in the Word of God is a Greek word where we get our English word Lego. As a, fact, and as a matter of fact, it is the Greek word Lego. And it, yes, it's like the toy Lego. You know what Lego means? To snap together. What he's saying here in this text is he says there needs to be a verbal snapping together of the church of Jesus Christ where you're verbally saying the same thing. We have here at this church, um, our, you can call it a slogan, you can call it our mission statement, you, whatever you want to call it, what we rally around. But we rally around one phrase, loving God, loving others, and serving the world. He says this in, in by way of application for you and I. This is our rally cry. This is what we need to be saying in a spirit of united fellowship. If we're verbally united together, then we verbally let this uh, area know that we love God, we love others, and we serve the world. But not only is he talking about a verbal unitedness, he says a second thing. He says, biblically, there also needs to be a congregational united. We need to be congregationally united in the church. Notice what the Bible says again. He says that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Now, if you have your pen, I'd underline that word divisions. That word divisions there means to rent or rip 
the root word here means to split into, into fractions or uh, in different areas, he says. So what he's telling us here in the text is he says there needs to be this verbal unitedness about the church, but there also needs to be this congregational unitedness. That is, you ought not to be uh, ripped to pieces, if you would. You need to be of one heart, one mind, one Lord, one baptism, one Holy Spirit, and one Jesus Christ through it all. Many years ago, when uh, my kids were small, we used to have tank top club. Uh, we used to love tank top club. It worked when my kids were little. I, you try to do tank top club now with them all, you know, 15 and 18 and, and 20. It's really difficult to do tank top club now. But what tank top club basically consisted of is everybody had to come uh, into the living room with tank tops on. And we'd sit around a little circle, and we had to adopt a song. So how many of you ever watched Hee Haw? Anybody? All right, so we adopted the hee-haw song. You know, the one, where, where are you tonight? Why did you leave me here all alone? So we would open up the, each club by singing that. I searched the world over and thought I found tank tops. You wore a v-neck and you were gone. That was what we sang. We sang it to open up tank top club and to close tank top club. And basically, you know, we would open Tank Top Club and we'd have a Bible reading and, and it was just, you know, something cute and fun for the kids. But every now and then, as dad, I wanted to show my masculinity. I mean, I do have three boys after all, so I wanted to show them. And so what I would do is at the end of Tank Top Club, after you were gone, I'd stand up there in the middle of the circle and I'd take my tank top and just go, Rah! And they'd look up at me at all, looking at me like, I mean, like I used to look at Hulk Hogan. I mean, it was just, uh, I was like, Here's another reason why it doesn't work today, because this dad bod thing is really taking over, and it just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't get the same effect. I, you know, walked out of the house the other day, to my kids, oh, dad, you're so gross. That's it. <laughs> just kidding, I, I didn't do that, but that's the reaction I would get, I promise. But that's the term here. Uh, he's talking about divisions, to rip to shreds. There are many congregations that have been ripped to shreds. Because not, they were not adhering to the biblical standard. Well, I get phone calls all the time. Got a phone call from a pastor just this year. Phone call came in and said, Brother, I need you to pray for me. I said, I surely will. Are you okay? He says, I'm not. I'm resigning. I said, uh, what's the problem? He says, well, the church has decided to, to, to let uh, men that have been divorced and remarried um, uh, to, to be uh, deacons. Uh, there's a biblical standard by which we have to live by. There's a biblical standard by which we have to go by. And if we're not adhering to the Bible, then we're not going to be a part of it. And so he says, I'm, I'm resigning. And he walked away from his church, brokenhearted. Uh, I bet he spent 20 years at that church teaching him the truth. And here was the, here was the reason why. We just can't find any men that will stay married anymore. So in order for us to have deacons, then we're going to have to go to deacons that have been divorced and remarried. Listen to me very carefully. It's never smart, neither is it wise, to go against the Word of God simply because the culture is going in a different direction. It would be better to have no deacons than to have deacons that aren't qualified biblically in the Word of God. And so we find that there are many churches that are ripped to shreds because what their pastor is saying and what the church is saying is two different things. Here at our church, one of the biggest challenges we have is we have three services. We had a, man, a, a great 9.30 service. We had a great 8.15 service. And here, look around here on this summertime. Uh, what a great attendance for summertime here at this 11 o'clock service. And the bottom line is simply this. We run the risk at Maysville Baptist Church of having three churches. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to pastor three churches. I want to pastor one church. 
Maysville Baptist Church. And I want us to be united. In fact, I want us to be congregationally united. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you've heard me pick up saying a little bit, I've been a, a little bit more emphatic in saying, you know, we get this gym out here built. If we get the gym out here built, we can get, this, get a stage in there and uh, have some uh, carpet in there. Uh, not, not for the gym floor, but I'm just saying a roll-up carpet. You roll out where we could have service. We put a thousand chairs in there. And can you imagine me preaching one time to our congregation? I mean, we'd have a full house today. I mean, we've had a full house all day long. And really the bottom line is simply this, having one service as opposed to three. And doing that periodically. I'm not talking about doing that every single Sunday. Uh, I mean, we need to grow towards that. Uh, the fact of the matter is we need the space for Sunday school. But I think about how we might be able to utilize that one time, two times, maybe even four or five times a year on special occasions to give your pastor a break. And I thank you for your faithfulness. We're going to get that thing done as quickly as we can, but we're going to do it on cash. We're not borrowing any money, period. Now, on top of that, our debt is also going down. I'm excited to say that we are almost under a million dollars in our debt. I mean, we are very, very close to being under a million. As soon as that happens, I promise you, I will bring a report to you to let you know that we're under a million in our debt. But in regards to this issue of being congregationally united, it's so vitally important that we are united congregationally, and the way that we do that is through Sunday school. We need you to be a part of Sunday school. But watch this. Not only does he tell us to be congregationally united, verbally united, there's a third aspect here of the biblical standard of unity. He says you also need to be mentally united. Mentally united. Where do you see that, Pastor? Well, look at it. It's right there, very plain in the text. In verse 10, he says that there be no divisions among you, but there's the conjunction that gives us an intro into the third subpoint that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What he's saying here in the text is that he wants us to be perfectly joined together. That word perfectly carries the idea of maturity. That you be so mature in your Christianity that you are completely and thoroughly repaired from any squabbling that has gone into the church, and you agree in two areas, the area of the mind and the area of judgment. Now, those two words are vitally important. We need to look at them a little bit more specifically in order to understand this mental unitedness that you and I need to have. Number one, he uses the term mind. The word mind here means understanding. That is, seeing it from the same perspective. That is to say, when you look up here and you see these children that are up here and you have the perspective of the children in the church and you think about, remember, we had a 9.30 service that had other children that weren't a part of these children that are here. Man, we have got to make sure we've got enough room to accommodate the space because you can't just, you know, you can't just shove uh, you know, 12 kids in a closet and call it a classroom. I mean, they used to do that many, many, many years ago, but I'm telling you, if you want to have room to grow, then there are standards by which you've got to live by, and we've got to see this thing from the proper perspective and understand it from the proper perspective and say, yes, we are all of one mind in regard to we have space issues here at Maysville Baptist Church. Number two, he also uses the term judgment. You see that there. What is that? Well, the term judgment there is talking about being opinionated. Opinionated, being of the same opinion. That is agreeing on the purpose of certain particular things. Well, what are the particular things we ought to be of the same opinion on? Well, we ought to be of the same opinion about salvation. 
salvation. What does it take for a person to be saved? I was talking to one of our college students who's serving as a college counselor, who's serving as a, as a counselor uh, at uh, uh, a Methodist. It's a Methodist uh, organization, and uh, they're serving there. And as they were serving, I was just asking, how are things going? And this counselor just simply said this, I've already got in trouble. I said, wow, really? What happened? And they said, well, we were in this meeting, and they were talking about uh, inclusiveness and loving everybody and just, and just making sure that everybody is, is okay and, and taking care of everybody. And, and we got to the end of the meeting, and nobody had said anything about the gospel. She said, so I, I raised my hand, and I said, well, how do you want us to present the gospel to the children? And the director, the director of the camp, the, direct, the, the, the head honcho, I mean the grand poobah, said, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I defer to this other individual. And so this other individual came and, and uh, said, Well, when you present the gospel to the, to the children, uh, you do it however you want to do it, you know, just as long as you talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that. Well, a couple of hours passed, and they were in another meeting, and that director once again stated and called, not necessarily pointed out, this student in particular, this counselor, but said, you ought to be careful with the questions that you ask because you don't want to offend people. Now listen to me very carefully. When it comes to this area of salvation, if we don't agree on how people are saved around here, we're in deep, deep yogurt. I mean, it's bad news. Why? How are people saved? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. These that were baptized today did not have their sins washed away in that water. These that were baptized today were showing an outward show of an inward change. What they said was there was a time in their life when they trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, and after trusting Christ as Savior, they wanted to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, knowing that Jesus Christ was baptized, so they too want to be baptized, and we see a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we better agree on salvation. We better agree upon what that means. Here's something else we need to agree upon. We need to agree upon our stance on when life begins. When does life begin? It begins at conception. Life begins at conception. We need to agree upon that. Which points us to the, to the fact that abortion is wrong. These are some issues that we need to agree upon. And so what he's saying there is there needs to be this. Be, you ought to be mentally united. You ought to be of the same mind that is in understanding and seeing it from this biblical perspective and yet still be at the same opinion and judgment in regards to agreeing upon why you believe what you believe. Uh, the church at Corinth didn't have this. And so Paul challenges them with the standard. This is the standard, biblical standard for unity. Number two, let me show you this very quickly and I'm going to wrap it up. We see not only the standard, but we also see the sin. You see the sin? It's in verse 11 and 12. Let's look at it together. The Bible says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Let me stop right there. The key word in these two verses is that word contentions. If you uh, highlight or underline in your Bible, I would underline that word contentions because that's, it, that, that's the word that Paul uses to describe the sin at Corinth. The sin at Corinth was being contentious. The church was a contentious 
church. And the contentions that existed there in Corinth, by, by way of definition, this term contention means a long and complicated argument that produces negative debates, strife, and disunity in the church. That's what these contentions were. They were long and complicated arguments that produced negative debates, strife, and disunity in the church. Well, apparently the church was divided in these fractions in the congregation about these different preachers and teachers. You see it there. Notice what he says there in verse number uh, 12. He says, some of you say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos, and some say I'm of Cephas or Peter, if you would, that's Peter, and say, I, some say I'm of Christ. Now let's break this down just a little bit and let's look at it. What about those of Paul? Remember, Paul started this church. Paul probably appealed more to the Gentiles than anybody. And so I'm sure that there were some Gentiles in the congregation that said, mm, Paul's our man. We like him. He, look at him. Look at him. He don't even shave. I like that. That's our man right there. He probably goes fishing every weekend. Look at him. He's our man. We like him better than the rest. And then you have over here, not only do you have Paul, you got Peter. Now, Peter most likely had the Jews. The Jewish people in the church loved Peter because he was one of them. There was a Jewish background, and this uh, resided, in, if you would, in the freedom that Jews had, in the hatred, if you would, that uh, these Jews had for Gentiles, and they relished that. And you could see them over there in the other corner. Look at them Gentiles over there. Over there talking about Paul like that. We don't like that. He dogs. We like Peter. Peter's more like us. He's one of us. I mean, he just as a Jew. Man, he got that sharp haircut. I mean, things are just good with him. I mean, he carries his Torah everywhere he goes. He's a lawman. That's Peter. We like Peter. Peter's our man. And then you had Apollos. Who was Apollos? Apollos probably was the second pastor of Corinth. He probably followed, um, if you would, uh, of Peter, excuse me, he followed Paul here after the start of this church. And Apollos was a real, of course, what we know about him is an educated man. And we also know that uh, he seemed to have this rhetoric or this oracle, if you would, where, where he really was a booming preacher. I, I'm reminded of Adrian Rogers when I think about Apollos here, that he, he was one that probably stood behind the pulpit and said, God. I mean, he's educated. So all the educated folks go, we like him. We like, we, like, we like Apollos. We like him, man. He dresses nice. I mean, he just, he, he tells about the Greek and, and, and he just, I mean, he breaks it down. I, I like him. I just like, I like, I follow Apollos better. And I follow, I know I follow Peter better. Or I follow, I follow Paul better. And then there was that last group there, you see. And they said, well, that must be the right group. No, no, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. Look at him again. He says, some of you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and some of you say, I of Christ. These individuals cared nothing about doctrine. They cared nothing about theology. All they wanted to do was follow Jesus. Jesus followers. Forget doctrine, forget theology, forget everything there is. Let's not be confrontational. Let's not present the gospel. Let's just follow Jesus and let's just welcome everybody. Let's let, the, the, let, let's let those that are of the Jewish faith, just let them come in. Just the Judaizers come in. Let's let the Gnostics come in. Let's just have a bonfire and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Come Lord Jesus. Let's just have a, just a, a good time. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. So what do you mean? 
Well, if they were to have been doing right, Paul would have never been saying their name because they were dividing the church. No, if you're going to be a true Christian, if you're going to be somebody that truly loves Christ and truly follows Christ, it'll bring the church together and not split the church apart. And they were splitting the church apart. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. Everybody has their celebrity pastors today. I mean, they all do. I mean, there's a tendency to have a favorite preacher. I told you I love Adrian Rogers. Uh, a lot of times, though, we put these preachers on a higher pedestal than they need to be. Uh, we look to Billy Graham. Some people say, oh, that's, man, I say, Billy Graham, everything, every, Billy, whatever Billy Graham says, that's it. That's, that's right there. Some Joel Osteen. Man, I feel so good when I listen to Joel. I mean, I just feel wonderful. I mean, wonderful. I killed the cat this morning listening to Joel Osteen. Man, I just feel so good about myself. I just feel good. That's good. Uh, Max Lucado. Uh, some say, uh, just whatever Max says. I mean, Max, Max should tell a story about a cricket underneath the pew of the church. And it just, I mean, it just, it's in the Bible. It's got to be in the Bible. Max Lucado wrote it. Kenneth Copeland. Man, I got, I got uh, people that, I mean, just absolutely. I mean, if it's Kenneth, they believe Kenneth Copeland more than they believe the Word of God. Why? Because he says he's got a fresh rhema. Let me just say this. Bless God. Look, the Bible tells, in the Word of God, the Bible says that there is no greater word of prophecy than this right here. Says, as a matter of fact, the Scripture tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy right here in the Word of God. The only rhema that we have is the Word of the living God. Any new rhema that we might have comes from the devil, not from man. Not from God. From the devil. No fresh ramus. All the rhema we need comes from God. Thank you, brother. Some say T.D. Jakes. Boy, I love T.D. Jakes. You see how man, he sweats. And I like to watch T.D. Because, man, he don't have a handkerchief. I like to watch. He got a towel. And he don't got that big old head and wipes it down. I mean, I love him. Love him. And Andy Stanley. How could you not like Andy Stanley? What I'm saying is there's a host of people. Here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with having your favorite Bible teacher. What's wrong is when you begin to put the claim that everything that they say is right and all other groups are wrong. And by the way, any teacher that does a good job will always point to Jesus Christ and not to themselves. It's not sowing into my ministry. Listen. Bless God, I don't stand behind this pulpit and say, why don't you give today and sow into this ministry? I'll send you, my, I'll send you my, my, my hanky right here. Look, right here. I'll put it in the mail today. I'll, you send in $3 and I'll, just, I'll send it your way. No, listen. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about His ministry. It's about winning people to Him. It's about pointing to Jesus. And this is what was so hurtful to Paul. He was saying, look, this isn't about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about Apollos. It's only about the resurrected Jesus Christ. And look at what he says there in the text in verse 17. He makes it real clear. I mean, I can almost, in my mind's eye, I can picture him saying this. He says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says, I do that with wisdom. I said, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What he says there is just simply this. He says, I come to preach the gospel 
so that people would get saved because Jesus changed their life and they would exercise wisdom. Not the wisdom of words, but the wisdom of God. That is the knowledge of God, His love, His grace, His mercy, His sweet resurrection, coupled, if you would, with the understanding that He died for me, knowing that redemption comes to the one and only that repents and gives His heart to Jesus. Then they want to be baptized, not to be saved, but because they are saved. And he says, I don't care who does it. I'm going to be honest with you. I think about Calvin, John Calvin, and uh, I think about Martin Luther and John Wesley. They would absolutely roll over in their graves today, knowing that people are walking around saying, well, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a, I'm a Wesleyan. I'm a Lutheran. No, we ought to be Christians. So what's the solution? He gives us a solution. You better listen fast. I'm done. What's the solution? Number three. It's found in verse 14, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And in 13. It's 13 too. Notice what he says there in the text. He asks three rhetorical questions. And when he asks these questions in verse 13, he asks them in such a way to jog our memory to apply a biblical principle. What is it? Number one, remember the Savior. Remember the Savior. Look at verse 13. First question, is Christ divided? Well, no, that's crazy. No, Jesus Christ. In fact, what they heard that day, when they heard Paul say, is Christ divided, what Paul was saying is, is Jesus Christ cut up, is he cut up and distributed to different people? Well, no, that's ridiculous. That is gruesome. It's awful. I don't want to think about that. No, his body was broken for the whole world. For whosoever comes to Jesus Christ can be saved. It's for everybody. That's what they heard that day. And, and so Paul is emphasizing. He did this with the Galatians too. Paul did. Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. He says there's one Jesus Christ. One Savior. One Lord. One baptism. One gospel. He said remember the Savior. Number two. He also says remember the sacrifice. Look at verse 13 again. He asked this question. Was Paul crucified for you? Well, no, obviously not. The Corinthian church says, no, he's not crucified for us. Well, then who was? Remember the sacrifice. It was Jesus that died on the cross for your sins. It was Jesus that was buried. It was Jesus that rose again the third day. And then the third one, he says, remember the substance. Verse 13. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, obviously not. No. No, 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 I was baptized in the name of Jesus. Then remember the substance of your baptism. Regardless of how good a preacher uh, David may be, regardless of how good a, a teacher David Jeremiah might be, if they're not pointing us to Jesus, we ought not be listening. We find here in this illustration in verses uh, in verse 13 all the way down to verse number 17 uh, we see and, and hear in Paul's voice when he says in verse 14 I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius lest any of you as any should say that I baptized in my own name I'll be honest with you we uh, saw uh, little Presley baptized this morning I mean what a joy that was and we got to see our children's pastor up there. And our children's pastor just simply said, Chris Porter, he just simply said, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. He said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus and dead members down and up. The only thing he said about himself was the pleasure that he had in baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
If he were to say anything else, if he would say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, and in my presence, and I baptize you in uh, Chris Porter, well, he'd be out the door today. He'd be fired. Why? Because he took the emphasis off Jesus. When I do baptism, I stand up there and I say in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and upon your public profession of your faith in Him. It gives me great pleasure to baptize you, my brother, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of His death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection. It's all about Him. It's not about me. So what's the conclusion here? in this passage of scripture. Well, the conclusion here is just quite simple. In regards to this issue of being uh, united as a church fellowship, then we need to be committed to unity. And in order to be committed to unity, we find that we point back to the biblical standard. The biblical standard for unity is that we be verbally united, we be congregationally united, and we be mentally united. Now, in order to be this, in order to do biblical things, you must first be a Christian. Because you can do biblical things and not be a Christian, and it's not going to work. You must first be born again if you're going to be committed to unity. You must first and foremost have the unity of Christ before you can have the unity of the congregation. So, dear friend, I want to ask you a question today. Who have you been following? Have you been following Christ? Or have you been following a man? Dear friend, mere men are just like everybody else. We're fallible. We mess up. We make mistakes. But thanks be unto God. He's a God of forgiveness. And He's a God that loved us enough to unite us through the blood of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. So maybe you're here and maybe there's some disunity. Not necessarily in the church. Like I said, I believe it's preventative maintenance. But maybe there's disunity in your family. Maybe there's some dads that have some disunity with their sons. Maybe there's some moms that have some disunity with their daughters or their sons, their children. Maybe there's a husband and wife that are they're exercising some disunity. You're, two, you're Christians, but there's disunity. Maybe there's disunity at work in your job. Or maybe there's disunity in the church. Could I ask you to do this? As we go into this invitation, this morning I'm going to open up the altars and here's the challenge that I have for you today if there's disunity don't be embarrassed just simply say Lord I need to go pray for unity and crawl up in this altar pray for not only that son or that daughter or that relationship that's got disunity but ask God to change you ask God to change your heart maybe you are the problem Maybe that you've harbored bitterness inside. Maybe you have struggled yourself with some areas. And, and listen, the bottom line is you're short and you snap and all these. And you need to get right with God. In order for there to be unity, there's got to be the leadership of unity. God led in His unity for you and I by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. Daddies, what a great day today. If there'd be some dads that would lead in the arena of unity and come get right with God. Father, this is the message you've laid on my heart. Uh, God, I do pray, Father, as we go in this invitation time, that you'd get all the glory, you'd get all the honor, you'd get all the praise. Thank you for loving us. 
And thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Word of God. And thank you for the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that if there's one here that's lost and maybe they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, maybe there's a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter that's never trusted Christ, I pray today would be the day that they ask you to come into their heart and life and to save them. Lord, would you save someone today? In Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you do not know where you're going to spend an eternity. I surely wouldn't want to close this message without giving you an opportunity to be saved. 